Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Tomorrow uh, morning, I think it is tomorrow morning, there is going to be a parole hearing, we are told, for Paul Bernardo. Now, there have been talk that there was going to be parole hearings before and he has canceled, but we believe that tomorrow there is going to be a parole hearing for Paul Bernardo. You need no background on the Paul Bernardo story, nor do I really intend to offer it because there is not a person listening, I am positive, who does not know this story. Question becomes, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Back when he was convicted, the judge said that you will never see the light of day again, something to those that effect, something to those words. Why are we doing this? Well, let me just not even leave. I won't even give you any more introduction. Let me just bring in my guest. Dr. Scott Kenny is from the Department of Sociology at Memorial University. He specializes in studies of victims of crime. He's also a board member on the Canadian Resource Centre for Victims of Crime. Uh, Dr. Kenny, thanks for doing this today. Oh, no problem. I would have, and I think I still would say, that there is 0% chance that Paul Bernardo will get freedom, will get even escorted day passes or unescorted day passes or anything. I, I, I don't think he'll get a whiff of freedom. And yet, I would have said the exact same thing a few weeks ago about Terry Lynn McClintock, who was part of the killing of Tory Stafford, and she just got moved into an aborig- Aboriginal healing lodge which caused outrage. Uh, am I, should I be confident, confident in the fact that Paul Bernardo is not going to get any kind of light touch from the corrections people? Well, I wouldn't be entirely, uh, you know, entirely confident that, uh, but at the same time, I think the odds of him getting out or, or getting a uh, parole are, are very, very slim given the, the extreme notoriety of the case. Uh, I mean, basically, you've got to, you know, I could explain this, the way this thing works uh, more very briefly. The, the system, basically, when someone is put in, in, in prison, they, they basically uh, do an intake assessment, and the whole system is based upon risk, need, and responsivity. And they try to look at the, the issues that the person faces and target programs to them. Uh, and they see how responsive they are to these things, and then they may move them to up or down, but generally down the security classifications. When it comes time for, for parole, and when, you know, in this case, uh, he has served his 25 years, is that correct? I, uh, well, he must have gotten close. It was, it would have been, uh, no, he wouldn't be there yet, uh, because it would, he's probably done about 23 years. And I only know that because the day that he had jury duty was the day my daughter was born, and she's 23. So there you go. Couldn't oh, okay, be quite 25 okay, well, yet. Well, I mean, it's, it, seems, it seems really quite unusual, if not, if not uh, you know, inappropriate for him to be even uh, able to apply for something before his 25 years if he was sentenced for first-degree murder. Twice. I, mean, I would think that there would be something, uh, something against the law in that respect. Um, but if, if let's just grant, say granted that he has reached his 25 years. I, I don't know for sure, but I mean, I, I will say that then what you have is a, a parole hearing, and a person does have a right to apply for a parole hearing when that time comes up. He's got life, but no chance parole for 25 years, but when he hits his 25 years, he can apply, especially now that they've got rid of the old faint hope clause when the Harper government got rid of that. But what happens then is that the parole board has to meet, there's a hearing, he will have counsel, and uh, basically... He, they, they will look at various factors. They'll look at the judge's reasons for sentencing. They'll look at his behavior in prison. They'll look at whatever insights he may or may not have into uh, what motivated his actions behind his crimes. They'll look at uh, the victim's input, and victims can speak at these hearings. Uh, I've done the same thing in, in, a, in a case in our family. A, a, a number of us went and spoke at a parole hearing. Um, and uh, it, the thing is that the 
the parole board then has to make a decision. Now, in this case, it's such a notorious case that um, there'd be a lot of pressure on this. And I will say that <clears throat> two things. The, uh, the families are able to make representations at these hearings. They're able to, they're able to be any victim that has registered with the, with the uh, Correctional Services Canada and the Parole Board. They're able to be there. They're able to make representations. And you can be sure that uh, this, they, you know, I, I've, certainly the, the Mahaffey and French families are very articulate. They're very media savvy. And uh, this would be quite a, quite a thing if they were there. And if, they, if anything did happen, uh, the pressure that would be put on the government would be incredible. You, you think that the the uh, the, uh, the McClintock case has raised a lot of uproar. This is something that is you, you know, would really, think. You'd, well, you'd you would you would I certainly mean, think so. But I mean, I, what I'm thinking about you and I were talking a little earlier this afternoon. Uh, I was thinking about back in the '90s when uh, when the the, uh, the pressure was put on the government about the Fade Hope Clause. What happened at that time? Uh, Clifford Olson applied, as was his right then under the under the Fade Hope Clause, to try to get early parole. Well, all hell broke loose. There were there were protests all over the place, and uh, certainly I know that the French and the Mahaffey families were involved in those protests. I was at some of these. And uh, I can tell you right now, they're very articulate. They're very media savvy. They know how to. They know how to uh, raise um, attention if need be. And uh, I suspect that if uh, anything like this were to come up, uh, if if there was even a, a whiff that he might get out uh, or get some kind of uh, you know leniency or something like that, it would be quite a. It would be quite an uproar. And you can you can imagine the optics on this. I mean, you think that the government got a la- got lambasted over the McClintock case. You can imagine the uproar that would happen over Paul Bernardo. He, you know, him and Clifford Olson would be the two biggest, most notorious serial killers in Canadian history. The uproar would be unbelievable. And I, you know, and think about the optics of this uh, on the government in an, in an election year. Yes, absolutely. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're chatting about tomorrow's parole hearing for Paul Bernardo, which seems like a ludicrous thing to have to go through because you would think that there is no chance that he is going to get parole, and so why even go through the exercise? Uh, Dr. Scott Kenny has been able to stick around. We appreciate that from Memorial University. And by the way, uh, I did say before you had asked if he'd done his 25 years, he has was convicted 23 years ago, but with time served in count included, he's done his 25 years, Scott. So that uh, he does get to his 25. Is. So there you go. Here's the question, though, and you were you raised great points before the break. But we had a uh, Tristan Hopper, who is a reporter for the National Post, was on the show a few weeks ago, and people can go back through the they can find the website, our website here at 900CHML, and listen to that interview. He wrote a piece about so many notorious Canadian brutal murderers who received early release for one reason or another. And while I agree with you that it seems entirely unlikely that Paul Bernardo would be thrown into that basket, what does it say about our system that we're even having to ask this question and that we even have some doubt in our mind that he may possibly get some consideration? Well, I mean, I read I read the piece that you're talking about uh, when it was out a couple of weeks ago. But I mean, it, certainly our system uh, does, you know, believe that after a certain period of time, people should be, should be let out. I mean, uh, life doesn't necessarily mean life. Uh, I will say this: that uh, if if you go back to when capital punishment was abolished way back in '76, even back then, which was uh, certainly not as uh, 
I'll say, liberal a time as we have now. Um, even then, people thought that the sentence of life with, with no chance of parole for 25 years was even too harsh, even in those days. So, there's, you know, I'll say that there's a there's a segment of society out there that really does believe this. It is reflected in some of our institutions. Uh, you could throw all kinds of other considerations in there. I mean, you know, I, I hate to say it, but it is very expensive to keep someone locked away for a long period of time. And there are people out there that think about these kind of things, and they they don't consider the other aspects. So, it, you know, it's a uh, there there are uh, in many ways what we're seeing here is um, different values being. Uh, represented in our institutions and these being balanced and sometimes not coming out the way we would like. Yeah, and, and for the points you made uh, and some others, I don't believe there's anybody, even on a liberal corrections system, that wants to attach their name and sign a document that says, yeah, Paul Barnard is free to go. I don't think there's a, a parole officer who wants that looming over their head in case something goes horribly wrong. So for that reason alone... I don't think he's going to get out. But I tried to get Tim Danson, who's been on this show before, who is the oh, yeah. lawyer for the families. Yeah. And he couldn't come on today for the simple reason. He goes, I'm in the area there now with the families trying to prepare them for tomorrow. We've got a case here where if we are all assuming that Paul Bernardo is not getting out, we're still going to put the families through this again. It, just, it seems unnecessary. Well, it's, it's re-victimization. And it gives him, I hate to say it, but it gives him another kick at the can. You know, it gives him another chance at notoriety. This is the thing. I was, I was actually, when you contacted me today to be on the show, I was thinking, well, you know, people like Bernardo, they're psychopaths. They thrive on attention, okay? And I'm, part of me was thinking, just by talking about this, are we feeding his ego inadvertently? You know, and I, you know, part of me feels very queasy about that. Because these are the kind of people that, you know, that thrive at attention. They're manipulators. I, I'm quite certain he's be, he'd be a master manipulator at the board. But I also suspect that the families will be very, very effective. Well, his lawyer, uh, remember he had a weapons charge that came up not that long ago. And his lawyer expressed some opinions that seemed like it was kind of a trial balloon for his parole hearing. And one of the things his lawyer said was, he's as horrified as you and I are at what he did. I expect that he will take full responsibility, express remorse, and he appears to be sincere in that. Then goes on to say how his family is loving and visits him and how he's really a changed person. And he's, geez, I mean, really, he's soft and cuddly Paul Bernardo now is the position. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I, look, I, first of all, I don't believe anyone is buying that. No. But I also, it concerns me that maybe there are one or two people on the parole board who maybe not this time and maybe not the next time, but down the road may, based on past history of what we've seen from our parole cases, that someone down the road may actually buy that. Well, that, that's what I fear, too, because I mean, I don't think it's going to happen this time around. But, you know, the odds are very, pretty well stacked against it. But the thing is, these things, they're not a one-time thing. They can apply for parole again. And Every two again, years, right? Within a certain period of time, yeah. And what, what happens is, uh, sooner or later, they may get the board they want. They may be, or, you know, it may be that, uh, that uh, people, the public's memory, you know, fades somewhat. It may be that the families get too old to oppose things anymore. I mean, I think they'll, they'll probably do it for their dying breath. But at the same time, uh, you know, they get more than one kick at the can. Yeah, the other thing that his lawyer said, and this is this seems to be the point with our parole board, our corrections system right now, that is what causes people the concern. It's a quote, their decision will not be how much he should suffer, but does he present a risk? And, whole, yeah, go ahead. 
that's the whole philosophy behind the system now. It's all about, like I said, risk, needs, and responsivity. And the idea, does he pose a risk? But again, here we get back to the point I, we were talking earlier today, is that how good are we, are we at predicting human behavior? You know, especially in the face of people who are master manipulators. And I have some real issues with that. Uh, but again, he's going to have chances to hone his case and chances to keep trying as time goes on. And this is what is uh, of deeper concern to me. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I think the odds are against it happening tomorrow. But well, and you're a guy You're a guy who works with victims, and I, and I just go on to go back to this quote. We only have a few seconds left, but their decision will not be how much he should suffer. You know, the, the flip side of that is if you were to let him out even for a day pass, you're putting all that suffering off Paul Bernardo onto the families. That's right. And the, you know, and the problem is, each time this happens, each time he applies, they're going to have to go through this all over again. It's like reliving the whole thing all over again. It's it's revictimizing them. And, it is, you know, and, and, and not only that, it's not just the families. It's revictimizing society because it not only affects the family, it ripples out from them to, to that's true to society at large. That's right? true. This community, you were here. You were at McMaster, I believe, when this was all going on. I was at McMaster when it was all going on. I remember the, the, the feeling in Hamilton and Burlington at the time. It is, uh, it, well, let's just hope that tomorrow that it's quick and it's uh, painless and it gets turned down fast and we can move on from this. Uh, Dr. Scott Kenny from Memorial University, really appreciate the time, as always. Thanks for doing this. Oh, no problem. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I know this song is not about real estate, but nonetheless, if you are going to buy a brick house in this city, it is going to cost you a few more bucks this month. Uh, prices in Hamilton, as have been the case for months and months and months and years now, continuing to go up. If you own a home in this city right now, the value of your home went up 5.2 on average, went up 5.2% over last year in this quarter. Now, that may not seem like an awful lot of money, but when you consider the average price of a house in Hamilton today is $571,157, I'm not going to do the math in my head, but 5% of that, figure it out yourself. It's not a little bit. And this is, um, well, as I say, we know this has been going on for a long, long time now. I want to bring in Krista Boyer, who's a real estate agent here in town with Judy Marcel's Real Estate. Uh, thanks for doing this, Krista. Really appreciate it today. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. There's two things I want to get at today. Both have to do with real estate. I'm going to get to the increased prices in just a moment mm-hmm. and all the stuff going on. But the first thing I want to ask you about... There is a house that has just gone up for sale on our street, and I'm sure that the situation that is on our street is not unique to our street. And what happened was the people who were selling, I guess they've known for some time they're going to be putting the house up for sale. They have put, put, they, I don't know if they gutted it, but they took a lot of time and spent a lot of money to redo huge parts of the house, new kitchen, new bathrooms, new closets, new backyard, new patio, new fencing. New, I, I have no idea how much money they put into this house before putting it up for sale, but it's a lot of money. And then right. when they listed it, it is listed for way more than any home has ever been up for sale for on our street before based on the idea this is a move in better homes and gardens home. Is that a smart real estate move to do all that and hope then that you can recoup it at the end? You know, and not to discredit the uh, the pursuit of the folks on your street, but I'd like to keep, uh, and, and talking with a bunch of other colleagues as well, we find the best approach is a keep it simple model. You know, the, the, 
some of the simplest things you can do for your house will actually bring a return and investment that you couldn't see with those monetary investments. You know, simple tactics like a hard purge, purging uh, unnecessary items, purging personal items, followed by a hard clean through and through in the house. The wonders that come from that, being able to truly show the space, that can have a huge, huge advantage on how marketable your house is. And then aside from that, once you've completed those tasks, then you start looking at, you know, general maintenance issues, doing some caulking in some areas that it might be needed, perhaps painting the walls, a fresh coat of paint can really change the appearance of a house. And it's very nominal in comparison to putting in a bathroom, putting in a kitchen. So, you know, when it comes to those pieces with the bathrooms, the kitchens, what have you, you know, the renovations these days are not cheap they are increasing um, and to question whether or not you get a return on your investment I would say if you're looking to do a bathroom you at this point should be doing it for yourself you know not for the next person let the next person decide what they want to do with the bathroom space that you have you know keep it maintained keep it looking clean and pre- presentable but I, w- I would I would recommend leaving that to the next person same with the kitchen space because there's two different ways of looking at it. The one is mm-hmm. that the people coming in keep the price down, and if they yeah. want to come in and gut the place and do what they want to do, great. The other side is, hey, it's kind of nice to be able to move in and have it move in ready, and it's beautiful and fantastic, and I have to do nothing except put my furniture in there. Right, and it is a case-by-case type scenario. You know, CH, uh, CMHC recently came out with a survey, and they were looking at the preferred status of a house, and most people do prefer a turnkey house. Um, that being said, um, turnkey, it, it, the, the definition of also changes with the buyer. You know, so as long as you have something that's livable and is presentable to a degree, you may want to hold back on doing any type of uh, further additions in the house or updates within the house. But again, it's, it's a case-by-case scenario uh, as to whether or not you should be making those improvements. But the, the starting ones, the foundational ones are there, you know, the purging, the cleaning, and then the maintenance issues. Is there a level, I'm talking financial level, house kind of level, is there a level where that changes, where you get to a point where the house is of a high enough value that people actually want all this stuff? And if you're going to put a price at a certain level, it's got to be there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And especially with new builds. Right. If you're in on a new build, there's an opportunity there to, you know, go for some of the, the higher end finishes. And if you have a goal in mind that upon completion that perhaps you may only live in the house short term and you're looking to turn it over, you know, there's there might be an opportunity there um, for some of the finishes um, price point wise as well. Uh, absolutely. You know, because it would be area driven. Uh, which would then be price driven. Um, so there, there would be some of those higher point homes where yes, you might want to consider it, but at the same time, um, it, it really would depend on how old is the kitchen? You know, how outdated is the kitchen? And do I want to invest uh, and project what I think the next person would want in their kitchen, which is, can be a difficult um, projection to create. Yeah, it seems like a high risk. Like it seems like if mm-hmm. it pays off, if if you get the right buyer to come along, you might be able to score. But boy, it seems to me like a high risk thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, again, like I like to st- abide by the rule of, you know, for your kitchens and your and your bathrooms, considering what the cost is to update them, you should be doing that for yourself first, and not looking to create a return off of the sale of your house. 
I will remember that. Now, is there any truth when you talk about the purge and you talk about the cleaning and the maintenance, is there any truth to the whole bake some cookies or bake bread before they come in? Uh, <laughs> you know what I would say there is? Absolutely. Smells smells are a key factor in houses, Yeah, right? pick the right so, smells though. Yeah, absolutely. You have to pick. <laughs> and I would, I would, you know, I would refrain from perfumes. I would refrain from scented type of odors because, you know, there's a lot of sensitivities out there. Um, you know, and I, I've been through with clients where they get headaches from these. I would try, if you have dogs, you know, let's see what we could do about the dog smell. Because again, like, you know, people step in and one of the first senses that is touched is the sense of smell. Mm. And the response is incredible. Like as, you know, the seasoned realtors out there, we, we work past smell, you know, because we're we're looking more at the next use or the next or the potential of the house, right? But a lot of the buyers, they can't get past certain smells. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Krista, before the break, we were talking about how the uh, Royal LePage put out its third quarter market survey forecast and is showing that we are up another 5.2% as far as home values. The city Mm -hmm. average price now over $571,000. There's nothing that is slowing down in this market. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I mean, we, we are seeing uh, an approach towards a bit more of a balanced market, but you're absolutely right. Like it's a, it, there's constant appreciation taking place throughout the city. So how do you, if you are a, we can leave out the people who own their homes right now, not that we're ignoring you, not that we don't like you, uh, but, <laughs> but the fact is you're, you're sitting pretty right now. If you own a home, you're just sitting on money that continues to go up and up and up. And that's a, that's a great investment. But how do you, if you are someone who's trying to break in now, especially with the added things they've put on the the pressure valves and all these things to try and keep people from overextending themselves, how do you possibly get into the market? I just went on your particular, your site from your your, um, real estate site and you know, it, places in town that once upon a time might have been 150000 are now $450,000. Yeah. And how do you get in? Yeah, and it's quite challenging because in further, you know, with the stress test rules, that makes it difficult for some buyers to insert themselves in the market. And then you look at the millennials and the type of jobs that the millennials are holding as well, and it's difficult for uh, quite a few of them to get financing because they're not in traditional jobs job roles anymore, right? So that's a bracket of individuals who are facing, you know, different unique challenges that weren't faced in past. So, and what, you know, as far as getting into the Hamilton market, people tend to move into other geographical areas throughout Hamilton that they wouldn't originally considered because of price points. And then for the most part, individuals will pause hoping for the opportunity to raise more down payment in order to create uh, a, a greater lending scenario for themselves or they'll look outside of the city. But it's an incredibly challenging market to, to insert yourself in right now. And there, Unless, sorry, go ahead, know, go ahead. Mostly for that bracket, you know, once you get into certain other um, demographics, some people aren't quite as tasked as the millennials, but... Um, uh, still, it's not without the fact that as far as uh, income levels within the city as well, you know, we there a lot of individuals are having to lean towards renting because they can insert themselves. 
There is also an argument that we've been hearing over weeks and months now from people who are, we know there's a municipal election coming up. We know yep. one of the key issues October in this 22nd. election yep, is the LRT. And yeah. we've heard a lot of people, when they talk about the LRT, talk about how this is great because it's going to increase property values anywhere along that line. Mm-hmm. Along that line is a lot of the places that traditionally have been the lower cost homes in this city. If And they're, they're way up now. Yeah. But if that's the case... Uh, there's going to be a lot people of people, even more people squeezed out. Well, what we would hope to see from the LRT would be more intensification and density brought in from the development, allowing for more inventory to be inserted into the development. You know, we, we're seeing that one more of... More vertical uh, inventory, condos vert- and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, well, not just condos, uh, rentals. You know, we're one of the developers that came into the city, they took Corktown Plaza, Slate um, Industries. They have, they're building two rental towers there, much needed in that area. Um, and further, you know, the opportunity for people, you know, earlier in the show, we were talking about add value to your house when you're going to market. Well, another add value approach that a lot of people are taking is to duplex. Mm. Their, their dwelling or do the accessory dwellings to bring in some type of supplemental rental to help them with the, the mortgage payments. You did mention, or you are mentioning, though, the vertical, the building condos or apartments or rentals, but condos, interestingly mm. enough, came up in this forecast as well. Because yes. while house prices went up 5.2%, it's been customary in this city for condos to be well behind mm-hmm. houses as far as yes. cost and as far as increase in prices. Condos, this this quarter, shot past houses as far as increases, not not value yet, but increase up 8.9%. Uh, We're not a condo city yet, but I'm wondering if the fact that so many people are squeezed out of the housing market, if now condos are are the best next option, but they're about to get priced out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and condos are the obvious next choice. You know, and considering as well the amount of single people that exist in Hamilton, it's, it's a higher than normal uh, average than what we've seen with past generations. So there's also that consideration. So condos are a great way to get in to the housing market because the prices tend to be less by comparison to his, uh, a bungalow or a single detached home. I've never met a real estate agent that has not said it's now time to buy. Uh, but <laughs> but when you when you consider well, the possibility you have asked me that question one year ago, I would have said no. <laughs> really? Okay. Not, not not in the market. Not when it was peaking. But when you consider what might happen if the LRT does happen and yeah. where the market seems to be going, it does seem like if you are wavering and you can find someplace, it does seem yeah. like this would be. Well, you don't want to wait too much longer, I would think. Well, absolutely, and and you know part of it is perhaps for some people expanding their horizons as far as where they're searching. And I've gone through this exercise with some of my own clients where they're very intent as a lot of folks are on the Durand Kirkendale area, but then I've impressed upon them that they need to start looking in other areas before they, we see escalations there that, that pushes them out of that neighborhood. You know, so I would, I would, I would definitely give that as advice to individuals to start looking in areas of Hamilton. They may not have considered and see if those neighborhoods would actually accommodate them. We uh, we will keep an eye on this because it's continuing to go up and up oh, and up. Uh, Krista yeah. Boyer from Judy Marseilles. You can find her website. You can find her name. She's all over the internet. You can find her listings <laughs> if you want to. I appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing yeah. this. Thank you, Scott. It was a pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a terrific story that happened just the other day down in the States uh, in Detroit, but it was relating to a Washington story. And that is that a woman 
called play-by-play, did the play-by-play for an NBA game. And you're saying, well, so what? Well, this doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. At least it hasn't happened. Best I can tell, best I know, there has been one woman back in 1988 where this happened that has done an NBA game, not as an analyst, not as a color commentator, not as a courtside reporter, doing the play-by-play until the other day. And in a Washington Wizards-Detroit Pistons game, a woman from Hamilton was the second to do it, breaking through and becoming, in the modern era anyway, the first person, the first person of color, first woman of color to be doing this. It's a great story. It's a huge moment. Her name is Megan McPeak, and she joins us now. Megan, congratulations. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it, and thank you for having me on. Uh, how does it feel to be the new Marv Albert? <laughs> Um, I wouldn't quite put me up there with Marv Albert just yet, but uh, eventually I would I would love that my name is in the conversation of the Marv Alberts and the Mike Breens um, of the world, specifically the Pam Wards of the world when, when you talk about NFL and, and women doing play-by-play. And you, uh, you have much, much, much better hair. I just got to say that for the record. But anyway, we'll move <laughs> along from there. Um, best I can find, best I can tell, you are the second, only the second woman ever to do play-by-play of an NBA game. There have been some, and uh, I think, um, I know there's been an NHL, a woman who doesn't, who's done an NHL game. There's been some NFL. Why has it been so hard? Why has it been such a challenge for women to get this chance in the NBA? I think it's not so much about women not getting the chance in the NBA. I think a big factor of it is also the fact that women just don't, do play-by-play typically. Um, it's becoming more common these days, which is good to see that more more young women are going to college and university and realizing that play-by-play is not just a man's world, that women can do it um, in men's sports. I mean, when you think about women's sports, there's numerous women who do play-by-play and do it for the women's side, but not typically do you see women doing it on the men's side. So, now that there's a generation of women that are doing it um, at a high level, younger women and the next generation are realizing that it's no longer just a game for men to be doing. Um, And I think that plays a role in why it may seem that there isn't a lot of women doing it in the NBA and why it hasn't been done in uh, nearly 30 years uh, between myself and the previous. So, I think it just has to do with the fact that not a lot of women are realizing they can do play-by-play. And see, and the oddity... They can do it. Megan, the, Megan, the oddity to me about that is, logically, you would say, if you have not played in the NBA, or you, 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 typically there hasn't been women doing this, I could see that would be play-by-play would be your entry where the analyst or the person who has to speak to the nuances of the game would be the guy, the guy who has been there before. Somehow that's turned around and been backwards. We've had plenty of female analysts and not the play-by-play people. Yeah, I mean, you look at Doris Burke, who's probably the biggest name when it comes to women doing color. Um, and then you look at, on the team side, Stephanie Reddy in Charlotte, Kara Lawson in Washington with the Wizards, um, more and more women, Sarah Kustak with the Brooklyn Nets, more and more women are doing and being welcomed in on the color side because they played at a high level um, and, and coach at a high level. Stephanie Reddy became the first woman to coach as a head coach in the NBA D League at the time, now the G League. Kara Lawson, obviously, historic 
time in Tennessee and then playing in the WNBA. Sarah Kustak was a great player. Um, if I'm not mistaken, she played at DePaul. So these women have played the game at a very high level um, and know the game, and that's why they're in the position and in the seats that they have. And everybody knows Doris Burke's story mm-hmm. as well, too, and Anne Mario Drysdale with the Phoenix Suns. So more and more women are doing it because people are realizing that they could care less if you're a male or a female. If you know the game, you know the game. Basketball is basketball. Football is football. Hockey is hockey. Really, it doesn't matter the gender. And I think when you look at the women that are knocking down these barriers and and crashing the stereotypes, it's proving that the people that make the decisions could care less about your gender as well, too. And they just want to make sure they have the best candidate sitting in that seat. That said, when you sat down and the tip the, that game tipped off and you began calling that game and, and you had to know I would think what some of the history of this was I mean did you realize how unusual it was what you were doing um, I really I mean I've known sort of from day one um, at Hummer College that women in play-by-play or the analyst position aren't aren't the quote-unquote norm um, and then when I was at McMaster doing CFMU, I realized that women doing play-by-play was, at that point, not the norm. There was maybe, you know, 10% of women doing play-by-play outside of women's sports. Um, so I've always been aware that me in this role is, quote-unquote, unconventional, if you will, but to me it's conventional. To me, this is normal. Uh, to me, sitting in that seat, calling a game, men's or women's basketball, is normal because I know nothing better. I've been doing this since day one, and I've known only that I call men's and women's basketball. And I think because I've done it for both sides um, in different aspects, that's why it it seems so normal to me. But I realize at the same time in the back of my mind, I do know that this is a big moment for women um, and women's sports and and men's sports and just basketball, period. Um, It was a big moment because, again, the first woman in 30 years because the last time it was done, it was February of 1988 and I was born in October of 87. Now that everybody knows how old I am, (laughs) but that tells you how long it took for the next woman to be the next woman. Um, And hopefully with me doing this now and more women doing play by play, it doesn't take another 30 years for the next woman to do that. You, you, you mentioned it though. You've done it at Humber. You, you were at Mac. You were doing women's basketball at Mac for a while. You've done the Raptors 905, which was their farm team. For those who don't know, do you, have you heard, do you get the sense? Have you felt like you have been judged or graded differently though, because you're a woman as opposed to the male play-by-play announcers? If I have, I haven't noticed and I don't pay attention to it. Um, I don't, really pay attention to what fans have to say. Um, I really just focus on, am I making my producer happy, my executive producer, and my director? Are When they're in the truck and when we're going through a season, are they happy? If they're happy, I'm okay with that, and I'm happy with it. Is the boss, um, the top boss, and you know my director and producer's bosses, are they happy? Are the people that make the decisions and sign the checks happy with what I'm doing and happy with the talent and and the game production that I'm giving them, if they are happy and they have no gripes to say about the way I'm calling the game or whatever it may be, I could care less because they're the ones that make the decision 
and they're the ones that sign my check. And if they're good with it, then I'm good with it. If a fan isn't, then guess what? Get over it because I don't really care if you're unhappy with it or not. That said, Megan, I have to ex- I have to expect that after that game, you must have t- received a ton of feedback. I know you say you ignore the fans, but whether it was on Twitter or whether it was by text or whether it was by email, you must have heard from a ton of people that you knew and that you didn't know because of how rare it is. Yeah, and that was that was probably the best part um, and not because of the recognition side of it. It was more from the side of doing something that hasn't been done in three decades and people supporting me um, and people having my back and they don't even know me. They're just supporting me and having my back because we're seeing more and more women have the ability to do things that they might not have been able to do before. Um, And that's because of women who have paved the way for myself and the women before them. And now I'm part of that generation of paving the way for the next generation. So the fact that people who don't even know me are reaching out to share their support and congratulate me. I didn't really care about the recognition, as I said. It was just the simple fact that people had my back, um, and if they didn't support it, then, again, I don't really care. We're talking with Megan McPeak, who is a Hamilton woman who was the second woman ever to call as a play-by-play announcer an NBA game just the other day. And Megan, you 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 mentioned about the fact that it's it's clear that you are recognizing that you are trying to blaze a trail here as well. You're trying to do something. Does that put extra pressure on you, though? Even though you're ignoring the fans per se, the fact of do you feel you have to prove something so that other people can come up behind you and do the same thing? In a way, I do, um, but not necessarily in a negative way, I find. Um, at the end of the day, in sports, whether you're playing, coaching, a general manager, an owner, media, broadcast, you're not going to please everybody. Um, and I think being a former player, that allows me to keep that in the back of my mind that I'm not going to please every single person every single day, every single game that I call. There's always going to be one person that is displeased with the way I call the game, the way my voice sounds, the way I look, the fact that I'm a woman doing a man's sport. So um, I realize that there's always going to be, you know, something negative is always going to be said. But if I can keep uh, a good circle around me, a good support system, that's the biggest thing that I've found that has been really helpful is a support system that does everything possible to keep the negative away from me and lift me up and remind me that what I'm doing is amazing and amazing in the sense of not because Again, the recognition. I could care less about, you know, the recognition and people wanting to talk to me and ask me what this is like and ask how cool it is. I care more about the little girl who's watching on on TV or Facebook Live or whatever it may be that she gets the game on. I'm worried about that little 8-year-old and 10-year-old girl. I have three 12- and 10-year-old cousins that are all girls who play sports. I care more about what they think and the, the fact that they realize that I can do absolutely anything in this world as long as I believe in myself. I care about that than I do about the recognition of making any sort of history. If I can influence and make an impression in a positive way on just one little girl that 
takes that power and strength that I give to her and make her realize that she can do absolutely anything, then I've done my job and I am happy with what I have done. I do love that you mentioned, though, the, the you know, people seeing it or, or seeing you do your work, because uh, I talked to the other day, there's a piece that's in the in the spec, it'll be on the spec.com and in the paper tomorrow. Um, it you This was one of two things that you were going to end up doing with your life, and both of them in some ways came from seeing stuff on TV. What were the two options that you, at this point in your life, you were either going to be a broadcaster or... I was going to be an interior designer. <laughs> Based on what was on the TV at home. It was HGTV or basketball all the time. Pretty much HGTV, basketball, and uh, Sunday, Buffalo Bills football. But I, just so people know, I'm not a Bills fan. <laughs> but it does, it, I mean, when you talk about that and you realize there are a lot of girls that watch basketball, there, there are probably a lot of people that are in the exact same position that you were once upon a time, except they were watching guys do this. Exactly, and, and that's what I, you know, as I, as I said, that's what I try to keep in the back of my mind is someone that is watching this, excuse me, someone that's watching this, you know, they might be having a bad day. They could, you know, they could have been told no by a teacher for a project or a boss for an idea that they wanted to pitch. And the discouragement that they might feel just by simply seeing, you know, me doing something that isn't typically done could give them the courage to go back and turn that no into a yes and fight for what they want. And that's, that's basically what I've, I've done since day one is continue to fight for what I want. Because now, I mean, you know, I told you this and for, for the piece that you were just mentioning, looking back at it, I can't see myself doing anything else in this world for a job other than what I'm doing right now. Well, and that's, you know, that that's what you want, right? That's what you, that's what where you want to be in your yeah. life is is at the point where this is the only thing you could imagine yourself doing. And I I've talked to exactly. enough people uh men and women, but mostly men to be honest because again, the 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 broadcast world in sports is still largely men and uh, to a person. Every one of them has said the day they did their first NHL whatever big league game uh, it was it was it was a wide eyed moment when that game started, and they realized that they had finally reached that point where they were able to do this, male or female. Was that the same for you? That it took a few minutes anyway to sort of go, holy cow, I'm doing an NBA game. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty surreal. Like in the, in the moment, once the game got going, um, and I got my footing and my comfortability. Um, the game kind of just it just it just went it just felt normal i felt like i was i was in the right position and i had done this before um and then when the game was done it was it, it still kind of hadn't hit me almost um and it was actually my my partner tony massenberg who will be uh, my partner for the entire go go season he looked at me and said how did that feel and i kind of just smiled and he's like megan you just called an nba game how, like and he kind of like shook me um, and sort of brought me back to reality almost. And I was like that, you know, I used a more colorful word, word but um, <laughs> I said, I, you know, I, that, I, that was amazing. It was amazing. And I just, I kind of just looked at him smiling and he was like, you look like a kid in a candy store. I said, this is me. Like this, this 94 feet and these four lines and the 48 minutes of basketball time or two to two and a half hours of real time. This is my candy store. Um, and I just had, you know, an epic moment in a candy store. 
<laughs> um, it's almost like, you know, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, you got your golden ticket kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it was sort of just him reminding me like, like, dude, you just did this. Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty surreal. And then just afterwards kind of just, you know, coming down off of, off of the high, um, and then realizing what just happened. Um, it was, uh, it was a pretty amazing moment and it was just, I'm kind of glad that it didn't happen before the game or during the game because it allowed me to just focus on the game mm-hmm. and call the game and not have, you know, outside distractions. Um, so I'm glad that it kind of it didn't happen until after the game was finished, which was, uh, I think it allowed me to stay a lot more comfortable within my call. Just before I let you go, because we do have to let you go, um, we have... Uh, coming out of Hamilton in the last little while, in the last NBA draft, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who's a, a guy who's now been drafted by the Clippers, he's going to be playing in the NBA this year. But we have also, in recent years, had Kia Nurse, who's now, I don't think arguably, she is the best player in Canada on the women's side. We have Lisa Tomitis, who's the head coach of Canada's national women's team. We've had Shona Thorburn, who was drafted into the WNBA and played in Europe and played for the uh, national and the Olympic team. What is going on with Hamilton and women's basketball and now you? Uh, all different facets, different things that people are doing, but women and basketball in this city has just exploded. What's going on? It's got to be something in the water, right? <laughs> well, um, maybe. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's just a, it's a testament to the the programs that are in the Hamilton area. You know, you talk about the Transways, the Blessed Sacraments, um, and the high school programs that continue to be amazing. Um, and when I talk about the programs, I'm primarily talking about the coaches. Um, you know, you talk about Lisa, who is one of the best coaches probably in Canadian women's history. Kia Nurse, who's, in my opinion, and some may say I'm biased because I've known her um, for primarily her entire life. You played and, with her sister. have followed with her, and I played with her sister. But I can easily say, and I, you know, I'm old enough that I've seen the Shona Thorburn era um, of women's basketball in Canada, and I'll be able to see the next generation that comes after Kia. But at this point, I can safe, I, I feel safe enough and, and, you know, determined enough to say that I think Kia is probably the best women's basketball player in Canadian history, not just right now. Um, but I think it's a testament to the programs and the coaches and also the parents supporting women sports and their daughters wanting to play the game of basketball. And then the young girls putting in the work um, to put themselves at, in a position like a Kia nurse did, um, like a Ruth Hamlin has done. Um, and you look at all the women coming out. Tamara Tatum is another one who becomes the first Canadian woman on a men's professional um, team as a coach with the Raptors 905. Her sister Alicia Tatum um, and their brother Patrick Tatum. You, know, you, you talk about women's sports, and it's not just in the Hamilton area, it's Canada in general, but specifically in Hamilton, I think it's just a testament to the programs that are around and the fact that parents are putting their young girls in basketball. The girls are enjoying it. They're not dropping out after, you know, there's that age group of 8 to 15 where girls typically withdraw themselves from playing sports. Um, But you see more and more girls going into it. So I think it's a testament to the coaches, the programs, and the parents all supporting these girls to go after something that they look at a Kia nurse and say, I can be like Kia and I want to be like Kia. Um, I want to be like Lisa Tomitis. I want to be like Tamara Tatum. Um, and hopefully there's a little girl that's saying, I want to be like Megan McPeak. And I want to be like Shona Thorburn, who has now taken the basketball side to life after basketball and is, is broadcasting. And she was in Spain with, uh, with FIBA. So 
I think it's just a testament to the programs and, and the hard work that everyone puts in to, br- to, to bring these women up and lift them up and tell them and continue to tell them that they can be absolutely anything that they put their minds to and want to be. Megan McPeak, it's a terrific story. Uh, congratulations again on this. It is, uh, it is historic. It's, it's amazing. It's remarkable. And we'll be watching for the next chapter because I know there's going to be a next chapter. The only thing you have to promise is no matter what happens in the next chapter, as I said off the top, you do not let your hair get like Marv Alberts. Anything else is totally cool. I'll make sure I try not to. (laughs) Thank you for doing this. Congratulations. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate you having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.